Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, Mike Taylor of Fins West and Catabatic Consulting returns to the podcast. Mike recently moved back to North Carolina after many years in Colorado. Taylor and I catch up and he shares what's next for Fins West and Catabatic. I think you're really going to like this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a review and rating in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And our friend Blaine Chocolate has a couple of new online tying classes. He'll be teaching folks how to tie the GC Helgramite and the Jerk Changer. You won't find these patterns in any book or magazine. The classes will be held live on February 6th, and all of the details are in the show notes. Space is limited, so don't delay. Now, on to our interview. Well, welcome back to the Articulate Fly, Taylor. Hey, Marvin. Thanks for having me, man. I always enjoy sitting down and chatting with you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the last time we were talking, you were in Colorado and I was here in North Carolina. We were having a horrible time with the satellite internet trying to record the interview and now you're back here. I know it had been on your uh, your radar screen for a long time that you and your wife wanted to move back east, but tell us how all that came together during a pandemic. Yeah, no doubt. Probably not the best time. And we actually put the brakes on. I mean, we were headed this way, this thing hit. Put the brakes on, see if things would settle down for a bit. But, man, um, it, it all came together. A, a couple of opportunities happened, and we decided it was time. And plus, with, with our traveling with Finns West, it, it would have been a nightmare to try to move in between our our traveling. So we decided to do it, man. We just uh, we picked a route. We did everything as safe as we could, and here we are. We, we made it. Well, that's awesome, Meg. Uh, any you know major challenges jump out you want to share with folks? Yeah, the whole thing. Um, I mean, luckily we coming across country. We didn't do the U-Haul thing because that would have been a nightmare. So we just we got a, a pod dropped at the house and packed our own stuff. And some dude came and picked it up. We packed all the animals in the trucks and loaded the boats and kind of picked our way across the country with our route where you know we would stay. Uh, stay at a campground or we would do a VRBO cabin and just do the safe thing, man. Just cook there, had our food in the truck and just came across as quietly and quickly as we could. And, you know, here we are. It worked out just fine. Got it. And, you know, for folks that don't know, you actually grew up in the mountains of North Carolina. Why did you come back to the North Carolina coast? Well, it, you know, we've been, what, in the Rocky Mountains for 25, 27 years or so. And if we were going to do this big midlife cross country change, we were going to do the big change, meaning not go back to the mountains and do the coast thing. And, but again, you know, I went to school down here. We had a place down here on the Outer Bank. So, you know, really, I, I just wanted to get back to the water. Got it. I figured maybe you just wanted to thaw out a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, there there were four reasons we moved back, and that was one of them. I, I'll tell you, the winter was my favorite time of the year. And as you know, you know, we spent our time in Antarctica and up on Everest. And the older you get, shoveling snow and and playing in the snow, it it, it just doesn't get any doesn't get any easier. No, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I think everybody thinks where they came from is special, but to me, there are you know, at least I can think of a handful of places where people are always trying to get back. And, you know, whether it's Texas, uh, Virginians are like that, and certainly North Carolinians are, 
you know, what is it that you think uh, it is about North Carolina that pulls people back that grew up here? You know, I can't speak for, for everybody that comes back, but I think a big thing is if you're from here, I would say most of your family's here for one thing. So you're, you know, you're coming back to, to family and friends that you grew up with. I think the other thing is the climate, right? Depending on where they're coming from, it's just, it's such a great climate, especially the older you get, you know, it's not as harsh as, as say out West. Um, and I, at least some places in Carolina are not getting inundated like where I just left. So I think just familiarity as you, as you get older to come back home, I think. Got it. And you know, you're in North Carolina. I think normally this time of the year, you're down in Chile, uh, doing helicopter guides. I'm assuming, you know, COVID has either canceled the guide season or made it impractical. Yeah, it, it, both of those actually. I mean, because of the logistics of of where we are at the at the you know Cape Horn at the end of the planet, um, people coming a long way. We've got to get birds moved. You know, we got to have our bookings pretty far in advance to to plan. So yeah, come October or even September, this all this mess was going on. So instead of dealing with the aftermath during this thing, we just pulled the plug and just didn't even try to deal with it. it, it and it was a good thing because, you know, shoot, uh, Chile was clamped down. Matter of fact, they clamped down not long ago again for a second time. So yeah, we just put it in the books and said, we'll wait till next year. Yeah, it's interesting. I checked before our interview, and I think if you fly uh, into Chile, you actually have to quarantine for 10 days before you can start moving around. Yeah, you may. And I, it, it's kind of funny. I've not looked on that side just because I wasn't going and we don't have any clients down there at the moment, you know, operating. I know they are. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's it's it would just be such a hassle to to deal with that and our jumping off point at the end before you know you get with us and go private is Arenas. and Arenas Chile was one of the hardest communities hit in the country i mean badly so it you know in hindsight it was the right decision i think yeah got it and you know you know, when you're not wearing your guide hat you know your other two businesses are Fins West and Catabatic Consulting and you know, those are both destination and expedition driven. You know, can you remind our listeners, you know, first of all, what uh, those businesses do, but also kind of how COVID initially impacted them too? Um, yeah, sure. So Catabatic Consulting, we do remote uh, um, and wilderness medical support for projects, obviously in remote wilderness locations. It has nothing to do with the fishing side. Um, and then Fins West is, we do custom wilderness medicine courses for lodges and outfitters uh, in the fishing and hunting industry, as well as emergency action plans, which that's going to be important here in just a second um, for those operations. Catabatic side, it, it, you know, it affected us a little bit, but actually we, with the U.S. Antarctic program, we've been as busy as we've, as we've been in about 19 years because we've got to move product and people down to Antarctica for fuel and resupply. So we've been working on COVID plans for, for the program since this thing started. Fins West, man, it shut us down. I mean, we were, you know, we've got to go to a lodge and, and do the courses. We're hands-on, face-to-face. 
So when this thing started, we canceled 30, 35 courses, destination places we were headed, and of course, the, all the fly shows and speaking engagements. So we've just been hanging on like everybody else. We're just fortunate. We've got a little bit of uh, other income from Catabatic, but you know, Fins West, it, it has. We've just taken this time to get our equipment dialed in, to kind of review our curriculum and listen to what our clients have been saying and just get ready to hit it in 21, I hope. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting too, because we talked a little bit before the interview, you know, we're starting to see fishing lodges reopen. And I know that you've worked uh, with some of those folks to help them put COVID safety protocols in place. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that looked like? Yeah, totally. And and listen, I'm going to be honest with you. It's just uh, another one of those things that came sort of out of nowhere because we were scrambling to to try to make things work when when this whole Rona thing happened and we were canceling. And then, you know, all of a sudden we started getting calls from lodges about doing some safety protocols for COVID when it was time to open back up, which was great. Um, I mean, these, these folks are, are vested in this and they want to do it right and they want to do it safely. So we just took our background and, and you know, kind of dialed in. Well, I'll tell you what it was. The, the, and we, we mostly did uh, countries, right? So Belize, Honduras, places like that. And their government had put in place um, standards that the lodges and the tourist industry had to follow. But of course, fly fishing or fishing lodges, I, they're not a standard hotel, right? They're not a standard restaurant. And certainly getting on a flats boat and going fishing was not in a government standard plan. So we just looked at the, the guidelines and best practices and the safest thing, and we just dialed in a plan that would work for a fly fishing lodge to keep people as safe and, and healthy as they, as they could. So, and that worked out pretty good because they are open and we've not heard any, any negative effects at all to the, today. Yeah, that's good. I mean, particularly in the Bahamas, I mean, between, you know, hurricanes, if they lost two, two seasons back to back, that would be not good for sure. That's right. And, and, you know, it's like everybody, I, these lodges, they operate on a margin. And this is devastating. I get it. I, I hated it for them for sure. But, you know, we, we did what we could to, to do the right thing and get them opened and, and, and for the governments to approve their, their plan. So, yeah. Interesting. And I know, you know, I know sometimes people just think about like, Hey, I'm a guest. What do I have to do? But, you know, you really, when you design these protocols, you actually have to kind of look at both sides of the coin, you know, one, you want guests to be safe and to be able to have a good time. But, you know, the lodge operators, like I need to be in business for the entire season, not just for a week. So kind of how does that get kind of worked into the mix? Well, I think the biggest thing, Marv, is that the the lodge staff and owners are invested in this. They're on board. Um, it isn't just, you know, let's get something on paper and get people here to make money at all. None of them. They wanted to do the right thing. And they just enforce is not the the right word. They they made sure that it, these safety protocols were followed. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing: having the lodge owners and staff vested in the plan. And you know the the plan. It, it you do notice it. I mean, duh. You know, there's people not all jammed up together celebrating their 
their tarpon and their permit catches. You know, people are spread out. Uh, tables are spread out. People are wearing masks. You know, they're altering their their shove-off times in the mornings instead of all gathering around the breakfast table, getting ready to go. But, you know, other than that, which is to be expected, you know, I think it's business as usual. Once you get in that boat and get on the water, you're fishing. I mean, that's the best social distancing you can do. Um, it's just people got to have an open mind and, and be prepared. You know, it may not be what they were used to, but there's not that big of a change. Everybody just has to do the right thing. Yeah. Are there any things that are kind of, I don't know if people were to, you know, go to a lodge that might surprise them. I mean, I think at this point people are, you know, pretty dialed in on, you know, not crowding up, spacing tables out and wearing masks, but anything that, you know, might surprise somebody. Well, I think what the what the lodges are doing is they are setting that expectation before the people even put the money in the bank. So, you know, that's part of these plans that uh, clients and guests receive this information of how it's going to be and why it's got to be like this. So there there are no surprises. I mean, it, you know, it's different if you go to a walkway trip somewhere and you don't like it, you could leave. I, you can't do that in Belize or Honduras. So. I think, you know, A, people's expectations, just, uh, you know, knowing what's going on, are already at check. And then the lodge is doing such a great job of saying, look, here's what we're doing. Um, You know, make your decision if you want to be a part of it. Got it. And then, you know, you know, you're talking about Belize and places like that. You know, obviously it's not, you know, a lot of these places are in the developing world. You know, how does that complicate kind of preparation, response and getting materials? Um you know, because I know I just read probably last Sunday, for example, you know, you have, you're starting, I think the 26th of January, you're going to have to have a negative COVID test to come back into the United States, even if you're a U.S. citizen. You know, how do you skin that cat in the third world? Well, you know, that's a great question. And this whole situation is fluid. I mean, as we all know, things change, like not weekly, but daily. Um but again, I think the the operators are on top of it, and obviously, when we're working with our clients on that, I, I, I just I don't know. I, I think that coming in from a country where you cannot get a, a test to show when you come in the U.S. that on the U.S. side, they're going to step up on this. End. Uh, I don't know what that looks like. Is that a kiosk when they come in to get a rapid test? Um, you know, I think you and I were talking to the in the airport for. <laughs> for three days waiting for waiting for the a test to come back you know i don't know uh, we've, we we are waiting like you are to see how we can advise folks in this industry on those kind of situations to be honest with you yeah and you know how does it affect you know for example the ability to get cleaning supplies and masks and things to actually support the protocols uh, you mean to the lodges themselves? Exactly, right? So, you know, you're in the middle of literally nowhere, not like what we think about in the United States is the middle of nowhere, but like legitimately in the middle of nowhere. You know, how are you getting the supplies to kind of keep the protocols running? Is that an issue that you have to deal with too? Well, I think, you know, because if you think about it, for those destinations for the season, when all this kicked off and people were preparing, they were closed. There was no travel. They were just preparing and dealing with the eventuality that they were going to open back up. And that's where they put these things in place. I mean, you know, instead of ordering, you know, 10 masks, they ordered 10,000 to have at the, to have at the lodge or the, or the, or the organization. So it was pre-planning, but again, I, it, 
it has also changed, meaning in this pre-packet stuff they send, it's like, hey, bring, just like anywhere, just like when you go to a remote location, these lodges say, listen, we're, there's not a hospital, you know, within 100 miles. Bring your own, you know, over-the-counter medications, prepare for, you know, being remote. I, they do the same thing here. Bring your hand sanitizers, bring your mask, you know, get your medevac insurance you know, have that in place. So it's different without a doubt. There's no doubt. It's a pandemic versus, you know, somebody getting sick at a lodge from, you know, whatever. But you plan accordingly. You do the same. Got it. And, you know, you kind of brought this up a little bit. How are the travel insurance companies responding? I guess there's really kind of two issues, right? There's the trip cancellation component, and then there's the the medical insurance component, have you seen them kind of step in to kind of help balance out some of the risk? Well, I think now that the travel insurance industry has, have got a handle on it. Right. But in the beginning, yeah, no, it was like everybody. I don't, whether it was a car dealer right up to a hospital, this just blew the sides out. You know, nobody had a handle on, on a, a pandemic that swept the world. And same with the travel insurance. It, it was a nightmare hearing from our clients and hearing some of our partners in the in the industry. You know, people got screwed uh, and they had trips that didn't cover it. I, I, if you look, you know, that the little writing at the bottom of like your credit card, when you get a credit card, it's down there in like number half font. It's on like the hundredth page. Some of the travel in, industry places, insurance places had a, you know, had a clause in there that if a worldwide pandemic broke out, sorry. And it never meant anything ever. Well, it did, you know, 10 months ago. But I think now, I, I, I believe I'm not a travel insurance guy. But from what I'm hearing that there are some, some policies, I believe, that you can put into place for cancellations. Um, but then folks like GR, Global Rescue for Medevac Insurance, you know, they've been at the top of their game since day one, right? That's what they do. You get this insurance, something goes sideways. They have the things in place to, to get you help, get you treated, get you back. So, yeah, that's critical in traveling these days. And I don't mean to a foreign country. I mean about anywhere. You know, travel medevac medical insurance is key. Because it's such an unknown. Yeah, and it's interesting too. Because I mean, I can remember when we had you on the show the last time. I mean, I don't think people really understand that you know it's actually not that expensive to carry for an entire year. Like it looks like expensive when you just put it up against a you know a ten day trip, but to go for a year, um, it's really not that expensive. And it's a great thing, you know. Like I've got friends that ski out west, and they just want to know that if they break their leg, they can be medevaced back to the east coast, back to their orthopedist. Well, and that's right, man. And listen, to be honest with you, uh, even a single trip, you know, it's your life, you know, once in a lifetime trip to Kamchatka or to the Seychelles. Actually, if you put it up against what it would cost without it, it's nothing. I mean, it's a drop in a hat, but, but you're exactly right. I mean, and, and it, the policy doesn't actually have to be you're in the Seychelles and they fly you back to the United States. They walk through the whole process. I mean, it could just be doing logistics while you're in the hospital. God forbid you break your leg and they're in touch with your family, the hospital, you know, what's the next step? I mean, it's the whole program. It's not just get in a jet and come home. 
it's worth us weight in gold. And I've said this a million times. We carry a policy year round and I wouldn't go a hundred miles from home without one. That's for sure. No, absolutely. And I'll remember to drop a link to the folks at Global Rescue in the show notes. And, you know, you and I were talking before we started recording and, you know, you know, really we were talking about, you know, in a lot of cases, the biggest risk is not getting COVID once you get somewhere, it's getting COVID getting there. And, um, you know, given your, your background, I was wondering if you could give folks some advice on what to do when you travel to minimize the chance that you, you know, you find out four days into your trip that you got COVID on the airplane. Sure. I, you know, Marvin, it's, we're, we're 10 months into this thing. Um, people are gonna, are gonna assess their risk, decide if it's worth it. Um, and then just do the right thing. Uh, you know, the things that you're hearing, social distancing, wearing your mask, you know, hand sanitizer, cause you don't know. I mean, you just don't know you're going in a cab, you're going to the airport with a million people, you're getting on a plane. So it's just do the right thing. There's nothing different. I don't think in traveling except just thinking ahead and planning that, you know, you're not going to, you're going to try to avoid being jammed in with a bunch of people other than when you're in the tube flying and just do the right thing. And, and, you know, just be careful and cognizant that this, this mess is going on and you're moving from point A to point B. No, absolutely. And uh, we're going to get back to talking about fun stuff like fishing here in just a second. But I did want to ask you uh, one more question. I know you you basically are kind of laying the foundation um, for kind of doing historically what you've done at Catabatic and Fins West for the not this season, but the following season. Anything else that uh, you're working on in 2021 you want to share with folks? Well, we're on the East Coast. Um, which is, which is really cool. I mean, granted, as you know, we've come and done some gigs with, uh, with the Virginia Fly Fishing Festival and done a course there. And we do have a client or two that we come specifically here. But I think the cool thing is, you know, we've been asked by a lot of our friends in this industry on the East Coast side, you know, whether it's to do a talk or come to a one day course and, and something. And man, you know, coming from Colorado, that's a tough thing to do in the schedule. But man, we're here now. You just jump in the truck and, you know, you can bust up to, to our, our good friends at, uh, can we mention, can we mention your folks on this thing? Oh, dude, you, it's your episode. You can say whatever you want to, Taylor. <laughs> so we can head up to Bryson City and, and play with our good friends up there at a fly shop. And, and again, I, the East Coast, I guess I'm just, I'm sort of babbling about that, but. The fact that we're now located on the East Coast, we will be able to do more, you know, one or two day hits um, for some events and shops and stuff now, which is good because, you know, like I said, Colorado's 10 years of Fins West there. So now let's show some love here on the on the right coast. Yeah. And in case people were trying to read between the lines, we were talking about our friends at Tuck Fly Shop. <laughs> Thank you. I was, wait- I was waiting for just either something funny or you know a little stab coming and and thanks for doing that no dude it's all good we love those guys oh absolutely we're we're planning with dale and those guys up there to to do some cool stuff when stuff settles down i always wanted to but we just we just couldn't work in you know getting back here because of our schedule and then the rest is man i I, we're gonna be busy i mean we know we talk to our clients we it's been now it's going to be a year and a season and a half that we need to get back and do some refreshers for some of our lodges, look at some more emergency action plans. So 
So, man, we're hoping we hit the ground running, that's for sure. Yeah, but we also have to get really honest. I mean, the reality is in the short term, you're doing a lot of fishing. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, if, and I'm going to be honest, if I had to be somewhere during this crazy shit show, it would be right here where I'm standing. I mean, I've got zero snow on the ground. It is 58 degrees today. And I got two boats on my dock out here. I can't think of a better place to be during the pandemic. Yeah. And so for folks that don't know, uh, Taylor's down in Pamlico Sound. And, you know, uh, why don't you tell folks a little bit about the fishing? Because I think you got, right, you got good sea trout. You got good red drum. You were telling me you got good striper fishing, too. Yeah, man. I mean, it's 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 amazing. At least, you know, it's new. When I say new, you know, we've been out west this whole time. But the exploration here on the Pamlico Basin is incredible. We have creeks, you know, there's rivers, there's the sound, you know, the ocean, the Outer Banks is just right across the water there. And again, you can go out in a day and, and rip specks, speckled trout, uh, redfish, and right now, stripers in one, just one little journey. So it's good stuff. And then, of course, you know, the big show starts late summer, middle summer into the fall when the big big bull red show up out in the Pamlico Sound, then it's going to get really stupid down here. Yeah. And the interesting thing too, is given kind of the variety of water you have, you know, you have the ability to fish for a day and not really kind of do what most people think about doing, which is fishing a couple hours on either side of the tide. Yeah, that's right. We actually, we don't have to worry about that at all. All the, all the water movement down here, at least where we are up in the Pamlico on the Pamlico river and the bays, it's not tide driven one bit. It's wind driven. So, you know, the wind comes in from the northeast, we get a bunch of water piling in. Wind comes in from the from the northwest, it pushes water out. But when the wind's just doing what it's doing normally, water doesn't move. So we don't have to worry about tides at all. Yeah. And it's interesting too. I mean, you know, people when they think about the coast, they think about the summertime. Um, but I think kind of one of the most special times to be, you know, on the coast in the mid Atlantic is in the fall and the winter. And, um, you know, for folks that haven't experienced it, why don't you tell them what it's like, you know, we know there are not a lot of people, um, uh, what it's like to actually be fishing, uh, on the North Carolina coast in the winter. Yeah, I would, I would highly discourage it. Uh, there's tons of people. It's cold. People are mean. The wind's blowing. I'd just stay away down here in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, I'm just kidding. It's amazing. It's the totally opposite of what all I just said. I mean, there are not a lot of people down here at all. The weather is fair. I mean, of course, we get some shit days, but more fair days than bad days. The fish are here. Like I said, uh, two days ago, we went out and, again, like I said, we caught striper, redfish, um, and speck, speckled trout in just one day. The sunsets are stupid. Um, it's quiet. It's just great. It's just, you know, you don't have all the hubbub. We don't have any hubbub where I'm at here, but just the environment, you know, come wintertime, you can still fish. And there's, like I, we were talking before, I, I was very surprised before we started recording. I looked out the window and there was a boat in front of my house. That's the first boat I've seen on this bay and I'm not kidding you, probably two weeks. So that's the other good thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like I know, like down around South Carolina, one of the big, big pluses for kind of late fall winter fishing is that the water gets really, really clear and the fish pot up. You know, what's the fish behavior like uh, on Pamlico Sound in the winter? 
Yeah, I got you. So it's a little different than our brothers to the south and sisters in that sight fishing up here. Now, granted, I'll talk about the potting up thing in a minute. But the sight fishing up here is not like it is just right down the road, right on the crystal side of, say, Wilmington and, and Core that are affected by the tides where you're literally sight fishing. We've got tannic water up here, right? So fish rarely tail here when they're eaten just because they just scoop and go. Um, but they do exactly what you said. Like I said, the stripers school up as well so when you get into them you're in them um the reds you just got to find the habitat and where redfish would be but you're 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 not really sight fishing except for not many people do it to begin with down here right i mean fly fishing in general up in the upper pamlico of course people do come here to fly fish i mean it's kind of the the secret but there's not a big what do you say, big industry? I don't think industry is the right word. Anyway, fly fishing is not like it is to the south of us at all. But the potential here is unbelievable um, for, for these fish on the fly. Um, but again, they do. When the reds come in, they're, they're schooled up. They're here. The water does get clear like it does, you know, down south of us here. Um, and yes, yeah, just the bite is, it's you know, the water cools down, you know. 50 degrees, 47 degrees. So, it's a, you know, the fish slow down on the bite in the wintertime. So, yeah. Yeah, and at the risk of grossly generalizing, are you kind of fishing for these kind of on like intermediate sink tips and sinking stuff to kind of get it down a little bit and fishing slow or kind of what's the general uh, tactic? Well, I tell you on the fly, I ha- and again, I am also, when I say new to the area, I just have not spent this kind of time here. Even growing up, being from the mountains, we would come down and, and either be on the Outer Banks proper or just come up to visit somebody to fish. But all my folks here, my buddies that do that are that guide and fish, um, I hadn't thrown a sink tent since I moved here. Now, you go up on the Roanoke River, big striper, big striper fishery. You need to. It's deep. I mean, shoot. I, anywhere here, there's nothing deeper than 15 feet on the bays, on the Pamlico, and on the sound. It's very shallow. So, man, we're throwing floating line. I will tell you what I've been doing. I've been pitching a little split shot. I'll throw a game changer, throw just your basic shrimp patterns and stuff like that for the reds and for the specs. But if I need to get down, there's a little divot or a little ditch. Instead of going to all that, I'll just pinch a little piece of split shot on just to get it down if the fly's not weighted. And just fish it, to be honest with you. No, that's uh, that's great advice for people just to kind of get a flavor for it. And it's funny because I heard you say you had two boats on boats on your dock, which means I know the answer to the next question I was going to ask you was, did you get boat <laughs> fever? And it sounds like you did get boat fever. Yeah, I had boat fever before we even got here. Um, yeah, I did, of course, I've got the flat skiff, the Hog Island, and that boat is the perfect vessel for where we are you know it, it'll run the creeks the the bays but if you've got to shoot across the pamico river and or sound on a windy day it, it is not because we're so shallow here that when the wind picks up and gets the waves stacking it's pretty gnarly um you know they're not very far apart you know like i said there's only 15 feet deep out there right so they stack up pretty quick. So you got to have a bay boat or a center console 
to make your runs from going from spot to spot. And that's another thing down here is you have your resident fish, which, you know, I've got fish stacked up where, you know, where I know they are locally, I can run out in the flats boat. But if I need to, if they're not here, you got to run over to another bay. You've got to go hit a shoal or an oyster bed. You kind of need a high sided boat that'll push through the weather. If it comes up while you're there, or if you're running. So yeah, I, uh, I got a, a classic privateer Radcliffe beaver boat when I got down here. And so we can run anywhere. Yeah. And so just to help our kind of non boat folks kind of understand the difference, you know, like that, that hog Island boat is rock solid, doesn't draft a lot of water, but I am assuming what you're talking about when you're crossing the sound is that the chop will just beat you up in that boat. Well, that's what it'll, it'll just swamp your swamp. Your boat is what it'll do. I mean, the, the, try to run across in that flats boat, the the haystacks are going to come right in the boat. Got it. But, you know, a high-sided bay boat, you can, man, you can run that thing out, out Cape Lookout for Albies. I mean, it, but I'll tell you that it was built for the Pamlico region, um, which means I can float that boat in about eight inches of water. And again, it's a 22-foot center console with a 200 on the back, but yet I can get it into eight inches of water. But yet you can run it, you know, you can run it out in the, in the mess in the middle of the river or the sound. So purpose built. There you go. Well, you can't have too many boats, can you, Taylor? <laughs> you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, another important thing that, you know, people that either have grown up in North Carolina or have spent a lot of time down here know it's super important to find a good barbecue place. Have you done that? <laughs> Man, I, again, being from here, I already already knew them even the ones places i've never been but yeah but i'll tell you i the best barbecue joint in the state of north carolina get ready i'm getting ready to throw a plug out is buns barbecue in windsor north carolina the people who know know the people who don't don't even know where windsor is it's in a gas station it's been flooded a thousand times but again it's the best cue you can eat here, guaranteed. Yeah, whole hog or shoulders. It it, it buy everything. That's just it. They they fire a whole hog up, or they've got another pit going. Because remember, this is Eastern North Carolina barbecue here. So they do a whole hog, or they'll have a shoulder going that they can pick on one side. They slam it into like a styrofoam container that was laying on the floor, and then you get just your good old vinegar coleslaw. Yeah. <laughs> So, so even though you grew up around Boone, you like Eastern North Carolina barbecue the best? Well, you know, my whole family's from here. I mean, my, my folks, all my family is still here. I mean, I, my folks have passed away, but no, they're from Eastern North Carolina, from Greenville to Windsor to Bayview to right down here in the, in the Washington Bath area. So I, obviously I was down here a ton. Grandparents were here. So yeah, we were, we were, we did the mountains and the coast thing quite a bunch. Yeah. So just one less decision you had to make. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate Taylor, you spending some time with me and not fishing today. Um, and, uh, before I let you hop, why don't you let folks, you know, know where they can find you, where they can follow your fishing adventures. And, you know, if we've got any, uh, fly shops or lodge owners out there that, uh, need to get a, a COVID uh, plan tweaked and put in place or need to kind of get their staff kind of up to snuff on uh, wilderness first aid can reach out to you. Yeah, man, it's pretty straightforward. We're Fins West, so it's finswest.com. Uh, 
there's a contact email link on that. I do want to say one thing that I guess we've noticed over the last years. Finns West is F-I-N-N-S-W-E-S-T. So yeah, there's that whole people put in F-I-N West. So two ends. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Fair enough. And we'll drop that in the show notes. Uh, and I know you're a super avid social media person. Where should people follow you on social media? <laughs> so it's the same. Fans West. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I need to go check. I got to go check to make sure we're, we're even on Instagram. But if we are, it's Fans West. <laughs> you are. You message me on it. Well, listen, Taylor, I, I, uh, I appreciate you spending some time with me today. Hey, well, Marvin, it's always a pleasure to sit down and talk to good folks about good things, Ken. There you go. Take care. All right, buddy. See you. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. And don't forget to check out the show notes to get more information on Blaine's upcoming online tying classes. There are a few spots left and you don't want to miss out. Tight lines, everybody.